Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio. This is the podcast liner notes revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest recording artist and Canadian icon, Jan Arden. We'll be talking about music and travels and the business of music and the life of her career entertainer. And we'll get some other insights as well about her multifaceted career. So stick around for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for a few decades now. So thanks for joining me today, Jan. How are you? I'm very good. I just stuck a Hall's uh, throat lozenge in my mouth, but I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, good. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I I thought I should start with a joke because you're such a funny person, but I couldn't think of one. Oh, I was already. I was like, I was so a priest, a nun, and a penguin walk into a bowling alley. That's great. Yeah, I, uh, I I love your interviews, and when I hear you talk and stuff, you you have this way of going from serious to funny, to funny to serious, to reflective, back to funny, to and you just kind of float between them all. Isn't that kind of life in general, though? <laughs> I mean, if you were to sit at a dinner table. Anywhere, whether it's at your parents' house or out at a restaurant or a diner, I think conversations tend to really swing, that pendulum really swings from one absurd topic to the next. Um, I always love eavesdropping on people. I'm very voyeuristic that way. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to look through keyholes at people doing nefarious things, but I do like listening to conversations um, I find them fascinating, yeah. especially like in a women's bathroom at, you know, 1230 <laughs> at night when you have groups of four or five women that always seem to visit the bathroom together. Yes. And just to yep. the snippets of what they're saying to each other, you're like, I have no idea of what really, what in relation this is to, but no, always fine. No, that's funny. Well, it's it's true though. We are a collection of our experiences, and and you got the the good times and the bad times. And something I often say is, you know, if you have a time to have enjoy yourself, enjoy it because life's going to kick you in the teeth at some point too. So mm-hmm. when you when you can laugh, have a laugh, and and when you have to go deep and and do other stuff, we'll do that. Mm-hmm. That's part of life, right? Yeah. So. No, very cool. So, so you were born in Calgary. You had some musical influences growing up, I guess. Did you take a lot of formal training or were you just kind of one of those people that yeah, had I have, music I in have your soul? no training at all. I don't read music or nothing like that. I've never taken a lesson in my life. There you go. Music in your soul, yeah. I guess is. Uh, I yeah. never, I, I learned to read music in like the eighth or ninth grade because I was in band. I played trumpet and I remember. Mm playing the theme to mash off of a chart of some kind, yeah. but I just have forgotten it. I, um, you know, I guess I should learn, but yeah. I never did. Well, no, it's, it's, if you can do it, you can do it. That's, that's the way I always look at it. And, and, uh, I think music is both a science and an art, but it's mostly an art and the science serves the art is what the way I've always put it. So uh, the artistic side is what counts. If you can paint a picture and it looks nice, then you're a good artist. Period. Well, my theory has always been if it sounds like something, chances are it is. So were you a typical kid? Did you have stars in your eyes? Did you look at uh, the rock stars and say, I want to be that? No. Were you one of those kids? No. no? I wanted to be a school teacher. Oh. I kind of had aspirations of teaching drama or English, you know, lit mm. or something. Um, yeah. And I just, one thing just, I just stumbled forward. It really is a very, yeah. a long series of, very seemingly insignificant events. There was never a big bang or a big break or, yeah, it just, it was just something that I was good at. And 
I just, I just kept going forward. And before I knew what had happened, you know, I was 28, 29 years old. I hadn't gone to university. I was still singing in the bars. And, and I certainly had moments of angst going, what am I going to yep. do? And, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it turned out okay. I guess I, I got lucky. Yeah, well, it, it's funny because I, I often ask people when I interview them, you know, how much, how much of your career was planned and how much was happenstance and how much was it a total accident? And, you know, someone like Brian Adams, I mean, he had a plan, right? I mean, that guy was motivated. He had a plan mm -hmm. and exactly what he wanted to do. Um, Susan Aglukark, when I talked to her, she was, it was a complete accident. She didn't have any aspirations, musical aspirations at all. Wow. And most people, it's somewhere in the middle, right? Where you just happenstance things, certain things happen in your life, certain things come along. You ended up in Vancouver out of uh, Calgary? Well, I was just there for a little while. I was busking on the streets out there. I had a friend wow. that had an apartment and um, huh. I stayed because she had broken up with her boyfriend. And yeah, I was busking in Gastown for a while and it, hmm. it was dismal and stupid. And then I ended up in bar bands going through the interior yep. of BC, like, Smithers and yeah. Kamloops oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, up north, uh, Dawson Creek. We went into the Yukon a little bit, you know, White Horse, Yellowknife. Yeah. And um, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we just played ZZ Top covers and Sheena Easton and, yeah. you know, all the, all the classic stuff that you play, bar bands. And during all of that, I was always writing my own, making up my own songs, I guess. Yeah. And I had banked hundreds of really kind of horrible songs that I just had on a pile of cassettes in a box. And, you know, hmm. I, I never had any intention of doing anything with them, but I really loved making up songs. So yeah. I think the passion was there. It, I mean, it, I, I always just loved doing it, but I just didn't think that someone like me coming from Springbank, Alberta could ever entertain uh, a life in the music business. So, yeah. you know, and I, I certainly, I wasn't a shameless self promoter like Brian or anything like that. I, I, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate yeah. that, but it's just, it's just, it wasn't, wasn't yeah. part of my personality. Well, when I was looking at your timeline too, so you were, you came fairly late to the dance, mm -hmm. right? Because you had, you had spent your twenties kind of kicking around and playing some music and stuff. But then I was wondering what your break, if you had a defining moment, because you know, a lot of people talked about getting record deals. I mean, how the heck do you get a record deal? Like how, how do you go well, from playing a bar and then getting a record deal? I started working with a guy named Neil McGonigal hmm. and he was, I don't know exactly a lot about his background, but I know that he had worked with some labels and I know that he sort of had these connections where he kept sending my demos, uh, stuff that we had worked on to different labels all over the place. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of labels mm. that all turned us down. They were yeah. looking for something different. And I tell this story a lot because it, it's a perfect example of good things coming out of bad things and how random life is. Neil had sent uh, a cassette with, oh gosh, eight or nine, maybe 10 songs with me just playing guitar and it went to a guy named Alan Reed at A&M Records, and he was very new at artist and repertoire there. He, in fact, he hadn't signed anything in 1991. The grunge scene was happening on the West Coast, and every young A&R guy was looking to sign the next Nirvana, the next Pearl Jam. Um, so when my tape came across his desk of a, you know, a more or less a middle-aged woman, I was 29 years old, 
(laughs) when he got my tape. So that's quite antiquated in the music business. He turned it down. And just through some weird series of events within a very, like the 24 or 48 hours, his longtime girlfriend, fiance had broken up with him and called everything off. And uh, he was very distraught, took some time off. Anyway, when he came back to work, He's a 26-year-old guy. He was younger than me. Uh, The cassette, my cassette was still in his car. And when he got in there, here's this woman singing about, you know, these love songs. I think the song that he listened to was called I Just Don't Love You Anymore, which is the the irony is not lost on me. Hmm. And then he called Neil and just said, I don't know if we'll ever sell a record, but I'm going to sign Jan. I think I get what she does. So it was just through a, a mishap, somebody else's unfortunate event that changed his perspective on what he was hearing because, like I said, initially he had turned me down. Yeah, interesting. And because your songs, to me, sound almost spiritual. Like there's there's something, I, I was singing one time, and I, of course you always try to evoke the emotions when you're singing and playing and stuff. And this woman gave me the best compliment I think I've ever had in my life, but she came up to me and all she said was, you're doing more than just singing. Mm-hmm. That was all she said. And and when I listen to you, I, I think that's that applies to you. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I don't think about it very much. I think I kind of started singing as a way just to represent my songwriting. I didn't really mm-hmm. know how to get anybody else to sing my songs. So through default, I was kind of singing them, but I always enjoyed singing. I enjoyed singing when I was a kid. Always loved it. Yes. Loved loved singing along. Loved copying people. So I think just something very simple and very basic was that I liked doing it. It made me feel good, and there wasn't anything complicated or it was it was a, just a very straightforward thing. I liked doing it. It made me feel good, and I think that's what's always kept me involved in music because I have no interest mm-hmm. in the fame part of yeah. it or any of that it just which yeah that comes across in in the way that you carry yourself but but there's a magic there is what i'm getting at because the karaoke bars are full of people who love to sing and it makes them feel good and it makes yeah. other people feel good I think it's for fantastic. some people yeah and i i do too i think it's great but um but there's a magic there you know i remember reading wordsworth years ago and i quote this quite often but he was talking about poetry saying it's the spontaneous overflow of powerful emotions mm. And I thought, well, that, that's what singing is. Well, that, that's like, what music yeah, it is. is. It's like yelling into the abyss for sure. Hmm. Um, you so. know, it's, it's a very primeval, um, the, the, the oral history of music, you know, just the storytelling that minstrels did, whether you're pounding on rocks 100,000 years ago or, or playing a bone flute or whatever. We've, we've always had a desire to entertain ourselves. And uh, my, my, my mom always would say, well, they sure like the sound of their own voice. And uh, you, but, you can always pick those people up, but I really do enjoy it. I'm certainly not yeah. one of the best singers around. I'm, I do what I do, I think, and I sound like myself. And I'm fortunate yeah. that way is that I think when people hear my voice, they know that it's me fairly soon out of the gate. Yeah. And uh, well, it's, that's been helpful to me for sure. Yeah, it's and it's the connection, being able to connect with your voice, singing f- 
from heart to heart rather than mouth to ear, I guess, mm-hmm. is, is the way I would say. Um, and then, so you ended up, so that must have been a bit of a, a whirlwind for you because you ended up in Santa Monica. Is that right? You mm-hmm. went down to the States and, and recorded in LA. Yeah. Neil and I had the opportunity to talk to a bunch of producers. I remember speaking to one of the guys at Steely Dan and um, John Leventhal, who I've always been such a big fan of. You know, that first record with Sean Colvin, Steady yeah. On, from 89, that I think is just one of the great, great records of all time. And uh, and then, of course, Ed Turney, um, who has, he's passed away now, but he had worked with so many greats, Bonnie Raitt and Clapton. and yeah. I mean, just everybody. Ed was a world-class engineer and worked on some of the biggest records that you and I have ever heard in our lifetimes. He's, yeah. He worked on them. And then he started producing. And I remember when I met him uh, at the Roosevelt Hotel in Los Angeles, I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't really know what a producer did. I'd certainly had guys work on my demos before, but he tried to talk me into hiring Larry Klein, which was Joni Mitchell's oh. partner. And he, he, he's just like, Larry, Larry's great. He's a lot better than me. You should go with him. And I just yeah. thought anyone that tries to hire somebody else is my kind of guy. So. I yeah. I went with Eddie, and uh, we worked together on quite a few records. Yeah, well, it's obviously a magical combination. But what's interesting to me is quite often when you're, especially when you're a new artist, you're assigned typically assigned a producer. So you're going to work with this guy. No, A and M, A and M, which is you know where I signed originally. It was a joint deal between Canada and Los Angeles. So it was mm. it was such an odd pairing. Um, yeah. But I I have been with the same label. For thirty years now, yeah, but that's yeah, great. but Eddie, yeah. Eddie just right. he took the songs and he he told me right off. He says I'm good at clearing the way, and he, we had a lot of laughs. He yeah. there was a lot. I don't smoke pot. I think I tried it once when I was like eighteen, <laughs> but uh, he smoked a lot, a lot of pot. Okay. Yeah. yeah, there was I'm always a, there was a gray yeah. cloud in the studio. You know, the '90s yeah. we were still working with two inch tape, and it was yeah. it was all analog. Um, Digital yep. had kind of showed up a little bit in some of the MIDI stuff and some of the keyboard stuff, but it wasn't it wasn't widely accepted by the pros. They yeah. they wanted to do everything just from the big Neve boards and and bouncing tracks and all that stuff. So I'm glad that yeah. I actually got to live in that yeah. world the first ten years of my career. Well, so that that's what I what struck me is okay. You now you're in L.A. You're recording, and then I remember that uh, TV series that John Gameshi did about the '90s music and network records, and they sent the bare naked ladies down there, and they sent Sarah McLaughlin down there, and they they really worked that market within about 300 mile radius of L.A. They put them there, they pushed them. So here you are down in L.A. recording. You're you're kind of living the dream as far as the music business goes. And so why didn't you stay there and and kind of build your career out of there? Oh, I didn't even cross my mind. I just wanted no. to come home. Yeah. Mm. No, I, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't a clubber or I, or a networker. I wasn't a person that jammed with other musicians. I didn't know anybody. I was raised, I live just a few miles from where I grew up. Like I'm out in the okay. country. So I, I really never even lived in cities. So I find them, they just, I don't feel well <laughs> yeah. okay. in a big well, city. I, mean, I just, I just yeah. was, uh, I was you know, 29, 30 going on like 14. All I wanted to yeah. do was get home. I was homesick the whole time. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Because some people that's their, you know, they want to no, hit that U S market and really try to. No, yeah. it wasn't me. I, I remember one of my, 
many critics said that I was too normal to make it in, in the United States. I mean, I, I never, never worked hard at it. I never toured down there a lot. You know, Insensitive was such a smash hit all over the world. And yeah. so certainly experiencing that and, and touring down there a few times. But I was so profoundly unhappy um, just playing clubs and, you know, really not making any money. And people just came to hear the one song and then they'd leave. And it was, right. it was such a weird thing. I don't think I had that kind of um, – I, I just didn't have that thing in my body that wanted to be in a white panel van shooting, you know, from Minneapolis to to Philadelphia and then across to Seattle. Like I just – I'm just like, yeah. no, I don't – I just don't want it that bad. And in Canada, things somehow were different. I was – I was doing theaters and, and they just got bigger and bigger. And then I was, you know, doing some arenas and, uh, but I did that. I did, you know, Letterman and Leno and oh, good morning America. I did all the TV stuff yep. ad nauseum. How was that? It, it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. And, um, I remember doing the Rosie O'Donnell show early days. She'd probably been on the air yep. for two months and she was wonderful. She was, she was, such a good version of herself at that time. Yeah. Yeah, the show. She was the queen of nice. Yeah. She was dubbed the queen of nice yeah. back then. Right? It was just yeah. the show was just really taking off. And, and I forget who was on the show with me mm -hmm. that day. But, you know, I did all that. And I just thought, no, this isn't, this isn't where I am. I'm absolutely a singer songwriter, but it was the work that propelled me forward and not kind of whatever that was. I found it very uninspired and you know that's fine if that's what you want you know go for it when I mean, yep. you look at tiktok and and how music is actually being sold in these 30 second little parcels and yep. the more streams you have that's kind of how you monetize your worth and i don't believe that to be true i i think it's i think it's a dead end yep. and um i just i'm still very much interested in an album of work and how that work how that plays you know, in a person's life. So I'm proud of that. And, and, and I'm probably too old for that. It really is a young, yeah. it's a young way of looking at things and it's cool, but it's not for me. Thank God. Well, and the thing is too, is when you, people talk about success and the level of success that you want, but you have to live in an alternate reality to be in that world. And it, and it's chewed people up and killed them. I mean, you look at Elvis and Michael Jackson, those people were successful, but it, to their detriment. Well, then you have to ask yourself, what is success to you? And success to me exactly. is, is my friendships that I've had for so many decades and my health, my well-being. I mean, I'm a very steadfast person. I'm yeah. not, you don't read, you'll never read anything about me, you know, going off or this or that or behaving badly or it's just not part of how I make my way through the world. You know, I might yeah. come out swinging a bat for animal welfare and tell someone to fuck off because I think they're a dick because they're like, mm, you know, bacon or I got a, you know, I got horse meat in my freezer. Like they just say stuff to me. So, yeah. but as far as being well, I'm just very consistent. I tour very well. I've never canceled anything. I don't get out there and say I'm stopping because I'm in mental health. Yeah, I right. just, yeah. I look after myself. Yeah. I don't drink. I don't, do any, I don't do anything. I don't even drink coffee <laughs> and I just have my head down and I do the work and I get through the shows 
and I'm reliable and all those things. So, but I have nothing to do with a side of the industry that everyone seems to think just glitters. It's just like a yeah. crow picking up a shiny thing. I really do love the work. And I'm not saying most people don't love the work, but fame has teeth and it steals your authenticity and it will, it will get you. Like if that's what you're attracted to, you know, it's a very dangerous path. Yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of examples of what you're talking about for sure. So, I mean, if I hear one more young person saying I'm canceling because of my mental health or I've lost my voice or I can't do this. I can't do that. I mean, it is, you're hearing it all the time and it's not because of COVID they're stopping these massive 50, 60, hundred million dollar tours because they cannot manage it mentally. Yeah. And it's because of all the pressures put on people and being torn in a million different directions and being surrounded with dicks. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And well, Mariah Carey had a very famous, uh, instance of that where she just kind of came unglued and had to just step back but there's so many people that are depending on you and and your voice and and your time and and your life is basically you're at that point you're just a a robot well ask ask young people what they want why are you going into music i want to be famous yeah there you go why are you doing social media What, what what do you want tiktok i want it to go viral i want to be famous i want to be known to me, it's yeah. just like, I feel like it's very Trumpian. Mm. It's like, do you really love politics or you just want the power of mm. notoriety and fame? So to me, it's not, I'm not interested. Yeah. I wasn't when yeah. I was 20. I wasn't any different then. I never, ever aspired to that part of it, ever. Yeah. Well, well, good for you. And, and, and again, that they, you're, you're looking at the, um, I guess the emotional side of it, the love of music, like this first song, when, when I heard, could I be your girl? That's when I became a, a Jan Arden fan. Cause that song really got me. I just, it's one of those songs. I love the song like, to this guy. I remember writing it. I was in Edmonton great. in a little studio in Edmonton and it was so, just, so good. just, it's yeah. so simple, such a simple thing, but, yeah. and I never, I didn't really understand what it was about at the time, but I just, I loved what it felt like, like that pleading idea of can I be with you? Well, and It's almost like a hymn. You well, know, when the backup vocals went on, and that was very much Ed Cherney, yeah. and when he had the refrain of the Oh My Lords, he had, yeah. I think, three singers that came in with me, and yeah. uh, a friend of mine, Lynn Elder, and, and uh, gosh, I can't remember their, their names. I worked with these two guys quite a bit over the years, but yeah. those yeah. Oh My Lords came on, and I'm just like, that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. So that's what I was going to ask you about your songwriting. Like, it seems to me, you know, you talk about that authenticity and just, just being yourself. And then I, I always wonder, how do you balance staying true to your style while vying for some kind of commercial success? Because there's both sides of it, right? Well, I mean, the record companies <laughs> want to sell records. Well, I've been very lucky. I don't know how Universal even still keeps me on, but I just, I did my 15th album. It came out in January and it really won't sell anything. But I think they always think long-term, which is cool. They're always thinking about the value of my catalog and the hundreds of songs that I've recorded. And, um, yep. But I, I love the record. But I was going to say to you, it makes me laugh because obviously I didn't think about the commercial aspect. And Happy is a, a perfect example of that, of coming off of, of Good Mother, of coming off of Could I Be Your Girl, coming off of Insensitive, coming off mm-hmm. of Unloved. It was, you know, Living Under June was a huge record. 
And, um, you know, people dream about having one of those in their lives. And me, I was just like, holy shit, is this, is this what I want? And Mm. uh, I didn't, I wasn't home for three years. I was all over the place. I was through Europe and Australia and through the States. And, and I was, I was homesick and, and things weren't very organized. The management company I was working with were dropping the ball. There was money issues. Mm. It's the typical problems that come up with when things happen quickly um there's a lot of holes that that aren't that just rip apart even further yeah so you know i ended my relationship with neil and and his whole thing and and kind of had to regroup and redefine myself but yeah. when i did you know i wanted to just concentrate on writing music again and let the chips fall where where they may and that's what i've really done the last 25 years for sure yeah well, that's, and, and that's the thing about songwriting, because some guys, like I talked to John Capek, you know, he's a, a professional songwriter and he's talking about writing anthems and writing songs for specific people. It's a different sort of mentality, right? Because they'll, they'll take an artist and they'll write a song for that artist, or they'll, they'll write something that they think is going to be commercially successful and uh, trying, to, trying to sound familiar, but different enough. So you fit in, but you also stand out. And it doesn't sound to me like you reflected on that stuff very much. No. It's, it's an impossible thing. I think some people have a real knack to know how to throw the ball within that strike zone, right? Hmm. Uh, they just they have a real knack for it. I know that there was a lot of Scandinavian groups of writers that were really nailing that vibe for people all over the world. They were, there's sometimes there'd be six, seven, eight writers on a song. And that just never interested yeah. me because they're curated. They're so specific. They're exactly, every word is, is over considered and what it means and the hooks. And, and I, and that is a really cool part of music, but it's not singer songwriter music. I'm writing about, you know, my experiences, my failings. I mean, I write love songs because I I still find them very interesting. I find that narrative really endlessly interesting to write about of how we find each other and stay together and, I don't know. I just, I, I would rather have people listening to my stuff long after I'm dead and gone than have a hit song on the radio for three weeks. That was a number yeah. one song that I just, it just doesn't matter to me. I don't like yeah. that numbers game. I find it, I find it empty. Yeah. And and your messages will continue to resonate because you're writing about things that people will always internalize and care about. But it, the professional songwriting thing, it, it's as you mentioned that that's true because you have teams of writers and, and they're just it's almost like pablum to the people in a sense. Not to say that in a disparaging way, but it's just they're trying to put out stuff that is going to be commercially successful. And it doesn't and it's that it whole is. fame thing again. It's chasing yep. that. I mean, to to monetize even a hit song, you're you're dealing with millions and millions of streams i think the payout is 0.001 cent yeah so let's say even if you had 30 million streams just do the math on the 0.001 it's not a lot of money but it is notoriety so that's been the trade-off i think that i mean there was so much money made when people were actually buying tactile product whether it's even yeah. the eight track or the cassette or the album, the albums are coming back again. Of course, they're probably the number one selling tactile piece of unit. Mm. Um, and there's yeah. a one year queue to get your records made into vinyl. Like oh, you, wow. you're, yeah, there's, there's just not enough places that make vinyl. 
Uh, even the vinyl itself is hard to get. COVID has, you know, put kinks in, yeah. in where that comes from. And hmm. Yeah. So with your music, that do you have a specific sort of message in your music, like a social, political, spiritual? I know you like the animal rights that you're, you're no, a big advocate. No, I, I really don't think there's any messages. It, they're so individualized. Okay. Every song is what it is. And it's just a moment. Yeah. It's capturing a piece of time. Yeah. And... But I, I don't, no, there's no messaging. I, I don't really think I'm very political at all. No. I just, and if it strikes me as something I want to write down, I do. And even like working with Russ Broom as much as I have over the years, you know, sometimes we just start with a chord progression or a groove and, and I just write whatever pops into my head. Yeah. And you've been very open and forthright about writing about your own things like the good mother or I guess yeah. about, you know, your, your dad's drinking issues or your, your mom's battle with Alzheimer's. I mean, some of those themes work their way into very your songs, much so. right? Yeah, very yeah. much so. No, there's, it's absolutely very day to day. And, yeah. uh, but I, you know, over the years, I've certainly don't dedicate, you know, a fraction of the time to writing as I used to. I was so obsessed with it from the time I was 12 years old to the time I was, mm. you know, 35 even 40. And yeah. I just didn't do anything else. I never was a foot away from a guitar. And I'm glad that that kind of found a place to just sort of sit and wait and, and that I just had uh, time for a life. And uh, yeah. I, I write when I write now. And I'm not yeah. obsessed about it. I can actually feel the fingers on my left hand. <laughs> they're not, oh, they're not like knobs of calluses. Yes. And, <laughs> uh, oh yeah. It was just like, no, I just remember I that my hand was sore yeah. like yeah. all the time, but I'm, I'm glad that I've found a balance for that. And I do love writing. Oh. Um, yeah. Well, that's the, and, and if that's your true love and, and one thing I noticed about you in, in researching your stuff, you, you never, you don't have the nightmare record company management stories mm -mm. or, I mean, did you ever get mistreated or taken advantage no, of? No, I, I think, I mean, I've had a, a night, my nightmare management story just with the, my early managers that I worked with, but I don't, you know, I don't think it was malicious. I think mm. we just grew apart. It was five or six yeah. years of working diligently to try and get a record deal. But then when money started coming in, there was just so many questions. Nothing was, they, right. they didn't know how to run a business and mm. we're in the music business. And yeah. I learned a lot from that experience. I still haven't spoken to them. Um, Neil in particular for gosh, it's got probably 25 years, maybe longer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, hmm. But it just, you, you just grow apart. But I, I, I will never negate the important role that he played in my life of getting the record deal and doing demos yeah. and things like that. But everyone plays a role as you go along in your lives. We have time, things happen in a certain time frame. And then, you know, I could never have stayed there, it would never have mm -hmm. worked out. But it was yeah. it was like a divorce. I mean, you know, yeah. it, it was a very difficult time because I was naive and I had never really worked with anybody else. But it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And then, how long did it take? Now you're with Bruce Allen now, who yeah, is of course I, 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 infamous I, and yes. famous. And <laughs> yeah, I've been. I, th I think I've been with Bruce. Oh, it's got to be sixteen, seventeen years now. Okay. But um, yeah. 
I had my own management company after I left Neil. I just, I just hired, I had three full-time people and, okay, and just kind of, um, worked with an agent. So I wasn't really in artist development by any stretch of the imagination. And then Bruce came along and, you know, my life changed so much. I, I really started branching out with him. I started writing. I've done, you know, five books now with Bruce. I have a yeah. novel nice. coming out next year and, uh, just, just recording the records became much more purposeful and a lot more fun for me. And he was that yeah. missing element that I, Bruce has made all the difference in my life. The television show, the, you know, podcasting, everything yeah. that I've done is because Bruce gave me the framework and the support to try different things, but he is a businessman and I learned very quickly that that was at the crux really of who I was too. I'm a business person. I love the arts, mm -hmm. but I'm also, I'm not going to go on the road if I don't make money. Yeah. I, I'm just, I, I, yeah, I well, won't for, go. For sure. yeah. I, I, when I walk out the door, I know what I'm going to make. And a lot of people will be touring for four months and realize they're $40,000 in the hole. Yes. I yeah, am a bill at the end exactly. of it. <laughs> but I'm a business person, but I'm also not 30. Yeah. I'm 60. And yeah. I, yeah. I always encourage people to make sure you've got somebody on your side that knows how to, to manage that part of your life. Because if you yeah. want to keep making art, you need to have a roof over your head and you know gas in the tank and it's all fun and games until you have not had money for 25 years and you're just worn out yeah so that's why yeah. that's an important part of anytime i have a conversation with young people it's just like make sure you know what you're doing mm -hmm. yeah that's good advice because there's so many stories the opposite it, to that it where, is you know, and and it crazy. doesn't and then and then you prematurely end a career that could have been lucrative or could have gone somewhere because that is people want to ignore that part all the time. You can't. Yeah. But then I wondered like for you being with Bruce, like Bruce is very intense, right? And, and the, the joke in the industry is he's a pit bull, but if he's on he's, your side, he's, he's, not, he's, he hasn't our, he's been our like, pit bull. He, but he hasn't been like that for years and years. <laughs> he's mellowed out a little oh, bit over it, the for, years. Since yeah. I've known him, he's, he's just not the Bruce of the eighties. I think that very yeah. much is a stereotype that was attached to him in the eighties when lover boy and when, when the Canadian music business was growing exponentially, the eighties were massive because in the sixties and seventies, we could name five Canadian artists. It was Joni. It was Gordon Lightfoot. It was Anne Murray. It was Leonard Cohen. There was a literally a fistful. And then the eighties hit and everything changed. Now there's thousands. I mean, some of the biggest artists in the world are Canadian. If you want to look at Sean Mendez and Bieber and, you know, Avril Lavigne, Alanis Drake. Morissette. I mean, massive, massive stars. Yeah. And, sure. uh, but, but Bruce is, he is, he's a very sensitive, smart, caring person. Yeah. And, uh, um, well, he did, uh, he did Bruce break here in Vancouver often. I don't know if that was run across the country, but he perpetuated that when he said he would start with, um, hi, I'm Bruce Allen. If you don't know who I am, go back to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the CK and W stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty funny. I used to love listening to it because yeah, he, it was so a, he, he's it was got a, that intensity, right? I mean, he does, but he's, he's, he's a consummate business person and yeah. you know, 
there's not a person in this country that doesn't go to Bruce to ask for his advice. He's been on every yep. board and sure. every committee. He's helped with the Junos for the last 20 years. And I know it frustrates him to no end of, you know, some of the decision-making and, and I've learned a lot, you know, yeah, he's like, if you're going to, if we're going to work together, you need to listen to me. And I do. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, well, good. That's a nice story. I'm glad to hear that because there's so many, most of the ones that I've heard are the other side and the other side of it for you though, being a self-directed person, you've managed to keep yourself from getting jaded in life and the music business, I guess just staying grounded, having a good sense of humor and, a, and keeping your love for music because music becomes a commodity for some people, right? It just becomes something you do to monetize it and you lose the love and the, and the, the luster that it had yeah. earlier in life. Yeah. There's, there's sure a balance, but I'm def like I said, I'm definitely a business person and yeah. I say no to a lot of things that, hmm. you know, I'm not particularly interested in. And I say yes to things that are financially viable for me and yeah. that can work. Cause it's not just me, you know, I have a band, I have, you know, yeah. a crew that you take out, you have, yeah production stuff that you you want to be able to give people a show that looks and sounds great you know especially when tickets are a hundred bucks and upwards you know it's yep. it's i hope people know that when they come to see me that you know that yep. money is is on the stage and it's in it's just in the building and how we present everything and and luckily i've been able to stay in the music business long enough to do a show that i'm really proud of and that's not me plugged into an amp in a, in a stage that your feet are sticking to with, you know, yeah. <laughs> 40 drunk people yeah. standing in front of yes. you. So it's a long journey. And if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't. It was too hard. So how would you answer the question, what, what's your overall philosophy of life? To be easy on yourself. You know, don't beat yourself up. It's very hard being a person. I think find little things that you like to do. And don't worry about what other people think of you. I don't even know what I think of me. How, why would I care what you think no. of me? <laughs> well, and it's shifting quite often too, right? Life is, uh, we're complicated beings. Yeah, but, but, think, but uh, to keep yourself healthy, you know, it's, yeah. uh, there is nothing outside of that. If you can't walk down a beach, if you can't, you know, if you, if you can't do things for yourself because you've, I mean, I'm very lucky. I still have my health. I struggled with alcohol for a long, long time mm -hmm. and didn't even really know I had a problem until it was a problem. Yeah. You think you're, it's all status quo and well, everybody else is doing it. And it's not that bad. And mm -hmm. you're wearing your friends out, wearing yourself out. So, but just, well, you become someone that you're not right. That, oh, that's what definitely. I didn't like, you know, and, and I look at, I haven't drank for years, but for almost 30 years, I haven't had a drink, but I, I didn't have a problem you. with it, but I just, I, I, it was somebody I didn't want to be. Exactly. I just looked, I said, that's not me. No, it wasn't me either. You know, I'm, no, I'm exactly the person I always wanted to be. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, you know, people don't always agree with what I have to say. And that's, that's the point. I don't, I don't expect them to. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I can be outspoken because I live with the absence of doubt and I'm not running around trying to perfect a life that other people are going to approve of that will yeah. leave you empty handed every mm. single time. Yeah. Do what you do, you know, no harm, no foul, do it without hurting other yeah. people or, or compromising other people. Be a person of your word, do what you say you're yeah. going to do. I always let people down. 
I used to yeah. always let people down. Oh yeah, I'll be there, blah, blah, blah. I'd be fucking hungover. Mm. Wouldn't show yeah. up or I'd have some lie excuse. Right. You know, when I was finally able to be a person of my word, it affected everything I did. It has profoundly affected my work and yeah. what I write about, how I approach it. Every decade, it seems, has been a different, um, a whole different way of looking at what I do and what I want to get out of it. I, I suspect I will die on my feet doing this to some degree. Um, yeah. I don't know if I'll tour as much as I'm touring now. I don't want to not be able to sing. You know what I mean? Right. I don't. I don't want to stand out there and go, "Holy crap!" She never tried that note, or that sounded terrible. I, I really do want to bow out before it gets to that. Well, good point because there's a few artists out there now that probably should have done that, but they need mm. the money. Yeah, there you go. And that's the truth. Yeah, yeah. So when it, I don't even know if it's the desire, and and maybe it's partly, uh, you know, I've heard so many artists say over the years, "The stage is my life." I'm like, oh my yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, I, I just, yeah. to me, I, I can't think of anything less true because the stage is yeah. not my life. I really enjoy it. Love making people laugh, love working with the band. It's so great. But when I leave, I never, yeah. during COVID, I'm like, I didn't miss that. Yeah. Well, I didn't. No, that's, yeah. Yeah, no, good for you because again, that's part of the grounding. Because if your if your life is that hour and a half that you spend on the stage, then that's a fake life. I, but it, you have to wonder what that motivation is of the the constant um, something picking at you to be recognized, yeah. to be noticed and known. And yeah. and I, it's been very perplexing of me because obviously I've met so many people over the years as I've made my way through this and. Some people are just so really cool and nonchalant about it. And other people, it's like, oh, you just, you can't get away from them fast enough. You can't get away yeah. from them fast enough because you feel that vacuum of emptiness and their energy is, is off because it's not real. And uh, you, you, when you feel sorry for people, when you, when you literally have a sense of, oh God, that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's and and looking for validation. I think that's that's part of it from from my counseling training. Everybody wants to be validated in mm -hmm. some way, but if it's not an authentic validation, if it's just um, a sort of superficial, which is you know again, if you place all your eggs in one basket, like I get validated by being on that stage, to the detriment of everything else, you're going to have a shallow and problematic life. There's just no no two ways about it. I hope I hope that people can come around and find their way through. Um, you know, and, and just find the perspective that they need or, or have the people around them that tell them that that stuff just simply isn't true and it's not real. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I just, I just am lucky. I have really good friends yeah. and I work with excellent people that are logical. They're, they're just very sound people. And I, my parents were amazing. They were really good people and they, Still, my mom to this day just informs my day-to-day -day comings yeah. and goings when I have questions. There's always an answer somehow that pops into my head. I mean, I know I'm answering myself, but I know that yeah. it it's kind of an homage to mom. I can just hear her voice, and I think to myself, what would she say? And it always comes yeah. through, so I always say, thanks, mom. Yeah. Um, and, and I do. I make good decisions that way.
You know, it's interesting because I, I saw that, like you had some struggles when you were growing up, but then you speak lovingly about your parents and about their situation too. You were able to, to sort of bring that around. Well, to I'm the still, positive still working on it, Dan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm still yeah. working on it. My dad was tough, yeah. but you know, he was just yeah. a person. He was a person yeah. with his own troubles and his own, just his yeah. own stuff. And you don't think that when you're a kid, you think parents are supposed to solve all your problems and bail you out. Right. And, and I had the type of parents that didn't remove my obstacles and they let me fail and mm. they didn't uh, bail me out. They were like, well, that's what you did. So yeah. what are you going to do? And yeah. boy, they're hard lessons. Cause I think I hate you. You <laughs> never do. Patty's parents don't do that. They got, you know, yeah. and then, you, and then when you're, I think I was like 33 and I was thinking about my, you know, my folks and what I put them through. And I just went, Oh God, yeah. what a moron. Cause then so, I started yeah, hearing, you, cause mom said to me one day, I'm not your friend. I'm your mother. And of course that hmm. hurts you when you're 16, but she wasn't, yeah. she wasn't my friend. She was my mom and she yeah, was right. always my mom. Oh, my mom is my best friend. Okay. Uh, and I, that's great. But my mom was my mom. And I'm the person I am because of both my parents. Just a couple quick things. I find your stage presence is interesting because you have a confidence, but a relaxed confidence up there. Like you're not a dancer. You're not up on stage (laughs) trying too hard. My choreography (laughs) is amazing. I mean, but it's, it's, it's cool because years ago, somebody said, well, if you want to see what an artist is like, turn the music off and just watch the video and just watch the way they move. And then there's a famous one with Jagger and Bowie doing that dancing in the streets thing with no music and it's very telling so we used to be the house band at merit fest and we would watch all the art tim mcgraw and reba and the judds and we, we opened for all these bands and we'd watch their stage presence and so i, I had to mention that to you because you have this confidence but it's you're not trying too hard like some artists do well it's good to know I, there's a great line that oh, it's not mine but garth brooks once said he said i'm like a thumb with eyes and that always made me laugh because yeah. I'm probably, you know, similar to that. I don't move around a lot. I make fun about choreography, but I don't I don't have an alter ego, which is nice. I never had to create somebody right. to march up there. And I am yeah. more relaxed than I was. I had about 10 years where I had so much anxiety to, to perform and don't know why my heart would just fling off and I didn't feel, mm. I just felt so nervous. And I thought all these years I've done this and suddenly I'm saddled with this. And then I quit drinking (laughs) and, you know, my low grade depression went away and my low grade anxiety went away. And, and then I was just standing out there going, I don't have a care in the world. I don't have a care in the world. And I hope that comes across because I'm genuinely, I'm happy to see people and I'm glad that they're there. And yeah. Yeah. That's why I wanted to bring it up because that does come across and and I noticed it. So thank you. Time for one more question. What sacrifices did you make along the way? And was it worth it for you? Did you sacrifice having a family maybe or or doing some other things in life that you might have wanted to do? Well, people, I mean, I think I did sacrifice having a family. Not that I wanted to have children, you know, really badly. I think in my late 30s, the biology took over in my mind and it kept picking mm-hmm. at me to say, oh, you better have a kid. You better settle down. You better do that. And um, so I can't blame that. But I, I wish I you know, part of me wishes at my age that I could say, we've been together for 28 years and, hmm. and, uh, you know, I'm on my own now, which is great. I'm loving it. But I, there's part of me that looks over my shoulder thinking, what if, what if that would have happened? 
but I always, you know, every relationship I was ever in, I always, my work always came first and I have to recognize that in myself. I, I always chose the work over anybody and the traveling. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart and you certainly can't be on the road for, you know, eight months, 10 months at a time and expect someone to be waiting like you've been in prison i'll wait till you get out honey yeah exactly yeah that's 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 a tough one yeah um but i think it afforded me so many things on the other side of it um it was it was a slog i'm not gonna lie it's not like it is it 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 wasn't an easy thing i just was Mm -hmm. in the bars a lot it's a lot of drinking but i think you know, where I landed is very gratifying and you can't, you can't skip the hard stuff. You can't jump over the caverns too wide. You, you can't yeah. jump across the ravine and expect to make mm. it. You're just not going to, you're going to break something, but yeah. I really enjoyed it. I, I, I love mm. music and um, yeah. it's been such well, a I, part I, of my life. I just, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the people that I've worked with. And oh, good. Well, and I appreciate your authenticity yeah. and, and, you know, if you can look back and feel comfortable in your own skin and say, I did what I thought I should do, it worked out pretty good. And I'm pretty happy with who I am, what I am, where I am. Yes. That's, that's pretty good in life. Yes. Right? If you can say that. Sure is. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. What a insightful conversation and just, uh, yeah, deep like your music is too. Well, thank you, Dan. I appreciate it a yeah. lot. Many thanks to Jan Arden for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from her life in the music business. More information is available at janarden.com. Excellent website full of lots of information. And she's active on Facebook as well. Jan Arden, look her up. Uh, We've enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and uh, share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio to hear the music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harden. 